welcome everybody on this beautiful afternoon. Tragically, to the last session uh, like, uh, of um, Adelaide Writers Week this year, I like the way Nigel described it as the ultimate session. So thank you for coming. My name's Natasha Cheecher, and I'll begin by acknowledging the Ghana people as the traditional custodians of the Adelaide Plains. And I pay my respects to their elders past, present and future. We recognise and respect their cultural heritage, their beliefs and their relationship with the land. And we acknowledge that they are of continuing importance to the Ghana people living today. Um, and I say it every time and I'll say it again, this is such beautiful land and I'm sure that it helps generate the very rich conversations that Adelaide Writers Week is very special for and that includes questions from the audience and I look forward to you participating as we move forwards. So um, before I start I'll just remind you by asking you to purchase books at the end of the session. It's been a really tough year for cultural workers globally and um, it's important that we read books buy books and talk about books so that we can keep those public conversations going. So I'd just, are we on now, Nigel? Is that good? Yeah. I'd like to introduce Narina Hertz, who hopefully will pop up on the screen. Hi, Narina. Can you hear me? Hi. Hi. I can hear you. Hi. And we, the session today is about Narina's wonderful new book, The Lonely Century, coming together in a world that's pulling apart. And it's really strange, Narina, to be sitting lonely on the stage, so to speak, and speaking to you in London. Um, and I wish that you could see the faces in front of me, so we're not alone. Um, but thank you for joining us today. Well, actually, thankfully, the cameraman did do me a pan of the audience. So I, oh, I, I'm not seeing you right now, unfortunately, but yeah. I did see you and it was... It was so moving and touching to see a real audience. I know. Because, I mean, um, I can only begin to... Actually, I don't know. I can only begin to imagine. Um, and we're sitting here in the beautiful autumn sunshine. It's about 25 degrees. And a lovely man just walked past with two beers. So <laughs> if you were with us, you could fully participate. But again, it's just such a miracle of technology that, that you can participate in this way. So... Um, I'm very I would, grateful to you. Um, so, Narina is an important public intellectual, I think, increasingly in the ilk of people like Martha Nussbaum. So, it's just such a perfect way to finish this fantastic week. I'd like to ask Narina, I'd like to begin by asking Narina to talk a little bit about the book and the idea of loneliness that she sketches and describes in this work very comprehensive work and specifically to talk about why we're living in the lonely century. So over, over to Narina to explain, lead you into, in, lead you into the dialogue. Sure. So, um, so I began my research, um, I began getting interested in loneliness really for three reasons. Three things happened to me at roughly the same time. The first was, and this is all about three and a half years ago. So first of all, I noticed that increasing numbers of my students were coming into my office in office hours 
I teach at university. I've been teaching for over 20 years. Increasing numbers were coming into my office and confiding in me that they were feeling very lonely and isolated. And this was a new phenomenon. It wasn't something I'd seen in um, previous years, at least at this scale, which got me thinking, what is going on here? Why is this happening? So that was one observation. The second was in my academic research, I've become increasingly interested in the rise of right-wing populism across the globe, um, of leaders like Donald Trump in the US, of course, um, but more generally um, in France, of Le Pen, in Italy, of Salvini, in Germany, of Alternative for Deutschland. And as I started researching this subject and interviewing right-wing populist voters across the globe, one thing that kept on coming across from their testimony was how lonely they felt. So I thought, okay, loneliness again. And then the third observation was that I had bought an Alexa, one of those um, AI-enabled um, virtual assistants that some of you may have. And I realized, and maybe it's because I'm a writer and I spend a lot of time on my own, <laughs> but I had realized that I was becoming increasingly affectionate, feeling increasingly affectionate towards my Alexa, this little device I had, and actually engaging in quasi-conversation with her. You know, hi Alexa, good morning, or always remembering to say please and thank you when I asked her for things, which got me thinking about a whole market full of goods and services, which had started to emerge over the past few years to really alleviate loneliness, um, provide community and and at their best even um, you know provide a kind of meaningful connection and so I thought loneliness going on in these three um, very loneliness alerting me to something going on in these three very distinct spheres which got me looking more deeply and broadly into the phenomenon and I think one thing that really struck me was that when we think about loneliness and when we've typically had conversations about loneliness in the past, it's often been centered around elderly loneliness. Yes. And um, obviously that's an issue. It's a real issue. In the United States, it's a very disturbing figure. 60% of nursing home residents have never received, not even, have never received any visitor at all. Have not received one visitor at all. So in... Um, Japan, the fastest growing um, demographic of people going to jail are the elderly because so many elderly people are so craving of company and companionship that they're intentionally committing minor crimes like shoplifting in order to be jailed, in order to find the company that they can't find elsewhere. So elderly loneliness is clearly a problem, but what really... Um, surprised me was how pervasive it was throughout society and that in fact the young were the loneliest generation that was a kind of wake-up call for me I mean even in Australia I looked at Australian data one in three 18 to 24 year olds this is even before the pandemic felt lonely so let's talk in the about United States one, the, sorry sorry I can't yeah oh sorry yeah. Yeah, yeah. Oh, there's a lag. Yes, keep, yes, continue. Please continue. <laughs> I just wanted yeah. to add this one American figure, which is a really landmark because it really 
shocked me. One in five millennials say that they don't have a single friend. Mm. There's a very um, actually charming anecdote at the beginning of the book where you're in a situation where you don't have a single friend, Narina, and you're in Manhattan and you dial a service called Rent-A-Friend. Would you like to describe your encounter with Brittany? Because <laughs> I, I didn't know whether to laugh or not, but it's charming, it's charming and somehow pulls a lot of these um, threads together in the sense that many of us, especially this year through COVID, many of us who'd never thought of ourselves as lonely people, I think are increasingly find ourselves in this situation. So could you tell the Brittany story? So I had heard that you can rent friends, rent a friend. And when I was in New York, I decided to try this out. Um, and you go online, there's a website, rentafriend.com, over 600,000 friends to rent globally, including in Australia, I believe. Um, and I picked, like shopping, I picked Brittany, a 23-year-old Cornell grad, Ivy League grad, and we arranged to meet downtown Manhattan. I have to say, Natasha, I was a bit worried before I met her because, um, you know, was this something untoward? What was I getting yes. myself into? So I made sure we were in a public place, broad daylight. Um, but it really was friendship. There was nothing sexual on offer here. And I met her in a cafe. We drank matcha tea together. We went into a bookshop, McNally's, one of my favorite bookshops in New York, um, looked at books. We went into a clothes store, tried on hats, tried on sunglasses. Obviously it wasn't like being with an old friend, but it was, it was like, you know, when you meet a new person and you're really clicking with them and it feels so fun. Well, that's what it felt like. I mean, afterwards, of course, I, I reminded myself that probably the reason she laughed so much at all my jokes was because I was paying her. But it, was, yes. it was amazing at the time how <laughs> how I um, how I didn't tell myself that story at the time, um, but it all came very clear to me that I was paying her when we're standing in the clothes store and she turns around to me and she says, "That'll be one hundred twenty dollars, please, um, U.S. dollars." Um, so, and what I found fascinating was I said to her, "I mean, the whole the fact that you can rent friends is fascinating, but of course not unprecedented. Nineteenth century literature, um, British literature is full of." Um, paid companions, um, you know, who obviously, are, um, English gentry, who were obviously playing this role of paid friends. So it's not an exclusively modern phenomenon. But when I asked her who were renting her, I thought her um, answers were interesting and illuminating. She said it was typically 30 to 40 year old professionals, women as well as men, mm -hmm. people who had moved to New York, didn't have, um, friends there, didn't have family there, didn't have support networks, were working all hours, people working in tech, finance, consulting, didn't have the time to make friends and just wanted someone to go for a coffee with or go for a walk in the park with or um, go and see a movie with. And, um, and I think in a way it's, you know, it's fascinating that the market has stepped in to address this problem, but it also is a sad reflection on the world we've built that people are so lonely they're having to buy friendship. Yes, and since you had your friend friend date with Brittany, of course the world has um, become subject to COVID-19. So would you like to comment on how 
COVID has introduced a new overlay to our experience and understanding of loneliness? So first of all, in terms of objective kind of hard data, we know that already from a really significant base, you know, in Australia, one in four adults feeling lonely, one in three, 16, um, 18 to 24 year olds feeling lonely pre-pandemic, from that really strong base, we've, um, we're seeing a significant rise. So recent um, US data, for example, over half of Americans currently feel lonely. And um, I haven't seen comparable Australian data, but I've seen data from other countries and everyone's seen a massive rise. So it's probably the same in Australia as well. So we're in the midst of a particularly acute phase of loneliness. Um, the pandemic has, as we've seen in many ways, amplified and accelerated trends and also um, fractures within society. And one of the trends that has in inevitably accelerated, which is inalienably linked to loneliness, is the rise of what I call a contactless existence. Mm. So um, it, you'll have to tell me if it's the same in Australia, but what I'm seeing elsewhere is a very significant rise in, for example, people shopping for their groceries online, people ordering their food um, on delivery services. Um, we've seen through the pandemic, a real rise in people doing yoga um, on YouTube. So people trading off in-person experiences, activities for ones that we're conducting um, um, on virtually. And um, that was something that had already begun before the pandemic, but since the pandemic, we've seen this massively shoot up. And on the one hand, you know, one might think, well, this is just a more convenient way of existing. And, you know, I don't need to get in my car. I don't need to drive somewhere. I don't need to, the hassle, it's so, um, you know, it's easier and in some ways it is. But my concern is, is that in the process, we're giving something up. We're giving up that face-to-face -face connection with others that actually makes a huge difference for how lonely or otherwise we feel because researchers have found that even a 30 second conversation with a barista in a coffee shop can make a huge difference to whether or not we feel lonely, to how happy we feel and how connected to others we feel. So that exchange in a yoga studio, that um, hello, how are you at the butchers, all those micro connections actually make a, that chat in a bookstore with the bookseller, all of those make a huge difference to how connected we feel. And yet what we've seen um, over this past year has been a steady rise in uptake of contactless, um, which if, if it were to persist, um, would I think have significant ramifications. Ramifications not only for how connected we feel, but also in a more fundamental way, because it's from um, having to navigate our trolley in a grocery store and thinking about not bumping into someone else and being mindful of someone else, from thinking about where to put our mat in a yoga class and making sure we're not downward dogging in someone else's face. It's through those moments when we're physically together with others that we um, practice what are essentially the fundamental 
underpinnings of inclusive democracy, mm. civility, reciprocity, thinking about others. My worry is that if we move increasingly contactless, we also aren't able to exercise those muscles. Well, that disconnection you're talking about is something I've also been thinking about for a long time because I also have a particular interest in the rise of the far right and anti-immigrant groups. So I'm glad you mentioned Alternative für Deutschland, who I notice has been um, perhaps had its wings clipped slightly this morning. Um, uh, could you drill down, could you step into that space a little? Obviously, we've had some big political change recently in relation to Joe Biden becoming the US president. Um, we've got Europe still in profound lockdown and the rise of right-wing populists like Viktor Orban and the list unfortunately goes on in that part of the world. We've got the rise of um, Marine Le Pen in France, who seems to be tracking pretty well in the polls. Can you talk about how loneliness is part of that story and, um, and, and how it relates to our broader sense of humanity? So easy question, Marina, easy question. Yeah. <laughs> So it was from my conversations with right-wing populist voters across the globe that um, I started understanding the role that loneliness played in the rise of right-wing populism. Lonely in a number of senses. Lonely um, in this kind of most obvious sense um, of feeling a lack, having a lack of friends, of family, um, of friends, of support network of people one could rely on. In fact, interesting data in the US um, from 2016, which looked at Hillary Clinton voters versus Donald Trump voters, found that Donald Trump voters were significantly more likely to have fewer friends, fewer acquaintances, and significantly more likely to say that they only relied upon themselves um, in times of need. So. We already knew from kind of empirical data that there was this link between people who were socially isolated and people more likely to vote for right-wing populism, but it came up in the um, in their stories as well. I remember Rusty, an East Tennessee railroad worker, telling me about how much he missed the brotherhood of the trade unions um, that he had had when he was working on the railroad and then he lost his job and he no longer had access to this and how he found community in Trump's rallies where everyone was gathered and singing together and chanting together and wearing the same branded gear. Or Eric, the Parisian voker who votes for Marine Le Pen, who's a staunch supporter of hers in France, telling me about how lonely he felt until he found community amongst his fellow Rassemblement National um, members with whom he would go and leaflet every Wednesday night and then go and have um, coffee with in a cafe. Or Giorgio, the small businessman in Milan, who told me about the camaraderie and companionship he found in these dinners that Italy's far-right Salvini would, um, La Ligue would host where they would sit together and sing traditional songs. So loneliness in the sense of feeling um, a lack of belonging, which um, right-wing populists have spoken very effectively to, but also lonely in the sense of feeling 
invisible, in the sense of feeling unseen, in the sense of feeling unheard, in the sense of feeling disconnected, not only from your friends and family, but also from politicians and your state. And in that way, we also see right-wing populist voters clearly um, expressing such sentiment of feeling abandoned, of feeling forsaken. Um, we have to remember many of these, um, the predominant makeup of these voters across the globe have been a group who we might think of as the newly lonely, um, typically white working class men who historically would have had social standing within their community, would have had the brotherhood of the trade union, would have been more likely to have been going to church and had that support system and yet who in recent years have kind of lost all of those dimensions as well as in economic terms finding themselves disproportionately left behind forsaken and of course right-wing populists again have spoken very effectively to that Donald Trump talked about the forgotten people um, you, the forgotten people, I'm speaking to you. Marine Le Pen uses similar language. So right-wing populists speaking to both senses of loneliness, the political and the personal sense of loneliness, the economic and the existential sense of loneliness that so many of these voters have, but also um, playing, of course, the community they wield is a very excluding one. Of course, it's, you know, they're, um, weaponizing community for their own purposes. Mm. Of course, they're doing that, but they're also able to do this in part because um, lonely people on average, and of course, this isn't everyone who's lonely feels this, but lonely people on average are more likely to see the world as a more hostile, threatening place, more likely to lash out at those they perceive to be outsiders. And of course, right-wing populists playing to that as well, too. And um, yeah. So we'll come to some solutions and some ideas about interventions on that front later. But I'd like to step now from this sense of political loneliness and sense of disconnection within the state to something more intimate, the lack of intimacy that the lonely is that characterizes the lonely century so you know in a sense the service you didn't fully get from Brittany so could you would you like to talk, would you like to talk a little more about the yeah. kind of the, that that more profound loneliness and the the kind of anxiety that comes with that because you have again some some very beautiful anecdotes around that so let's start with perhaps you'd like to talk about Cuddles for Sale and Carl, the software engineer, and his very sad story, actually. So, as well as being able to rent friends, it turns out you can also pay to be cuddled. And, um, again, we're not talking something sexual here. Um, we're talking about people really just wanting a hug, someone to hold them. Um, that sort of intimacy and not finding it in our increasingly harsh um, go, 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 cutthroat world that for many is a kind of Hobbesian world. Mm. 
And, um, and one of the people I met as I learned about this phenomenon was a man called Carl. Um, Carl was a 50 year old man. Um, I met him at a Starbucks in Beverly Hills. And he walked in, very nice looking man, salt and pepper hair, wearing chinos and a kind of polo type shirt. And he sat down and he told me his story. He'd moved to Los Angeles a few years before. He was divorced and um, he was very lonely. He'd found it hard to make friends. He said, you know, he went to work every day. He was a software engineer at a major media company. He went to work. It was hard to make friends in the new work environment. So he'd just work all day and he'd come home and he'd feel very lonely. And he would crave, miss, you know, physical touch, someone putting their hands on his arm, um, somebody holding him. And he heard, he learned, he read that you could rent, um, not rent, pay to be cuddled. And he decided to try it out. And he got in touch with a woman called Jean um, and he started seeing her. And he would pay, I think it was $60 an hour to be cuddled. And he said it absolutely transformed his life. He went from being really depressed and feeling very lonely to feeling much happier, much more productive at work. So it was transformative. I said, gosh, that's you know, really fascinating. And then the story turned um, sadder and darker because he said to me, you're not using my real name, are you? And I said, no. And he said, okay, well, I've got to confide in you. In recent months, it hasn't been enough to just see Jean on a weekly basis. And I said, oh, so what are you doing? He said, well, I'm actually paying other people to be cuddled. And I said, oh, you know, this must be expensive. And he said, yes, it is. And I said, how do you afford it? And he said, I'm living in my car. This is a professional working at a major company, a software engineer, who's so lonely, so craving intimacy that he now lives in his car so that he can afford to pay for his cuddles. He lives in his car, he showers in the 24-7 gym, he leaves his food in the fridge at work just to be able to get that intimacy. And this is obviously an extreme case, but I actually as well as renting a friend, and I don't write about this in the book, um, I actually went to experience what it was like to pay to be cuddled as well. And I went to a group, a group cuddling session um, in Venice Beach. And what really surprised me was how ordinary and normal everyone in this space was. I mean, you know, obviously it seems like such an extreme thing to do, but you know, they re there was the divorcee who had moved, this you know, nice woman who had moved to Los Angeles again, wasn't in a relationship, was craving intimacy. There was the um, young um, filmmaker who also was just craving intimacy. These were people who just felt so lonely, so bereft of human connection that, um, that the fact that there was an ability to pay so that they could receive it in a safe, consensual way um, was something that they were willing to do. And um, 
even though I found it wasn't my cup of tea, um, maybe it was my British reserve, <laughs> um, I could see, I could see that it was meeting a really real need um, for some people. And again, spoke to the fact that so many of us are feeling lonely. Well, again, if you bring the COVID overlay on top of that, it becomes quite horrific. I saw um, a teenage daughter of a friend of mine in Sydney a couple of in December, and I've been stuck in Tasmania um, under COVID, and I hadn't seen her since before COVID hit. And she was so excited to see me, and she ran towards me, and then she stopped and she said, Are you touching? And I've known this child her whole life. And so for, for this child to say, are we touching? I thought, you know, we've never... So these extra layers of caution and fear and risk, yeah. I, I don't think are to be underestimated at the moment. So there's another no. ch charming... And that's really... That's Sorry. Yeah. yeah. No, go. Yeah. I was just going to say that that's really interesting that you're saying that in a, in a place where you're kind of a bit further down the line than we are here. So that's a really interesting observation for me. And how conscious this very young, well, she's not really a child, she's 14 now, but how conscious she was of that and of the protocols around that. So you sp spoke about British Reserve. Now we've got layers and layers of extra complication, I think, about how we comfort each other. There's another charming, I mean, a really charming story. I really loved the Colatec story of the elderly Koreans. That's, that, because to me, that's a... Because I'd like to nudge us towards some solutions now. Um, would you like to tell the story of Colatec? Because I already want to go to one. Yeah? So, um, yes. Yeah, so first of all, Natasha, thanks for kind of um, moving us now to solutions mm. because... Um, to the audience, my book is full of solutions, yes, um, like all the way through, yeah. full of um, solutions, things that government can do, things that businesses yeah. can do, things that we can do as individuals. And um, one of the ways that the market has actually delivered in a kind of rather magical way is um, in South Korea, where before the pandemic, what we saw was a real rise in what are called colatex. And these are like discotheques discotheque, colatex, um, where elderly people go, where retirees go, and dance in the daytime, which I absolutely love that idea too. And um, thousands go at a time, so these big halls where people dance, um, or even matchmakers um, who kind of um, will introduce people to each other um, for people who are shy and, you know, don't know anyone there. And, um, and people love it. And actually there was a lovely, I love that. I love that concept as well. And I tracked what happened to the Colatex during the pandemic, actually. This is not in the book. But one of the things that I found was that a lot of them moved outside and people were still dancing together outside um, in South Korea, even when they weren't able to congregate inside, which I absolutely loved. And this, um, I love the idea, um, you know, we're all craving your, it's so wonderful that you're all in a physical space together right now. And, you know, I think the counterpart to our fear about people's reserve post-pandemic in a world in which hugs and handshakes were toxified for a period. Um, the counterbalance is the fact 
and the hope is the fact that people are coming to festivals like yours. And I've seen images of you know, young people at music festivals in Australia and at discotheques in New Zealand. And in um, Taiwan, we saw 5,000 people a night going to see Phantom of the Opera in the fall when theatres were reopened. And you know, people, we are creatures of togetherness. We are hardwired to connect. And our desire to be together is so fundamental in us that um, I look forward to dancing in daytime discotheques um, post pandemic. And I think and I think hopefully they're not just going to be for elderly people because I would go too. <laughs> yes, yes, me too. In fact, we might start one after you sign off. Um, you, it's been extraordinary to see how, Narina, how happy people are to be here. I mean, people are always happy to be at this festival because it's great, but people are super extra happy. Um, the audience, also the writers, you know, because we didn't really know until last week whether we'd all be able to come and participate. And it's just such an affirming reminder of how that's our resting place to connect. And you, you have a lovely, there's a lovely, there's a lot of lovely language and reflection in your book about the importance of care, community and compassion, which in lots of ways I think we've, we've, we've in this neoliberal frame that we've lived in for so long now, um, we've started to view those as soft options or somehow optional extras and things that we can do without. But this is such a time of being reminded that we can't because if we if we do without if we do without them we'll get sick and we'll get sick. Would you like to talk yes. about that and the, the relationship of loneliness to health? Yes. So really, ever since the 1980s, we've lived in what we might think of as a neoliberal world. So these are the economic ideas kind of um, promulgated by Ronald Reagan in the United States and Margaret Thatcher in the United Kingdom that really became the dominant economic ideology from the 1980s onwards. You know, a dog-eat-dog, greed-is-good ideology in which um, people became increasingly individualistic, saw themselves as increasingly individualistic, and in which we as a society increasingly valorized traits such as hyper-competitiveness um, at the expense of traits like caring for each other and compassion and community. And, um, and we, saw this, um, we saw this rise in individualism even play out in pop song lyrics which we saw since the 1980s onwards become increasingly individualistic with words like we, us and our supplanted by words like I, me and myself, which I find fascinating the way that our language has even evolved so that we see ourselves more um, as I rather than we and our culture reflecting that as well. Um, and of course, that sort of hyper-competitive, um, me-first, self-interested first world was inevitably always going to be a lonelier one. My hope is that moving forward, um, you know, this period of collective struggle when we've all been through something so challenging together, this period in which we have come to, you know, as a society reflect upon and cherish the frontline workers, the nurses, the doctors, people who care for others, carers, um, and really hold them up in a way as our heroes in a way that 
frankly, we hadn't in recent years. My hope is that we leave this moment um, with a much greater respect for these people and a society with a much greater respect for these qualities, for sure. But you also spoke in your question, asked about the health aspects of loneliness. Mm -hmm. And yes, because when we're talking about how widespread loneliness is today, it's really important to land that. One of the reasons it really matters is because loneliness is really bad for our health, really bad for our mental health. And we've seen, we see a real link between loneliness and levels of depression, levels of anxiety, and even, unfortunately, suicide rates. And we've seen, for example, recent data in Japan about significantly rising suicide rates in Japan, particularly amongst women during the pandemic. And um, one of the inevitable reasons for this is the rise in loneliness and isolation um, they've witnessed there as well. But loneliness is also bad for our physical health. Um, and that is maybe surprising to some uh, to some of you in the audience. Um, bad for our physical health because, essentially because we're not meant to be lonely, um, our bodies essentially send an alarm signal um, through us if we're feeling lonely. So what happens is when we feel lonely, our blood pressure goes up, our heart rate goes up, our levels of cortisol, stress in our body go up. All of these signaling to our body um, and to us, you know, don't feel lonely, go and find your tribe, go and find people to hunt and gather with. And the trouble is that in contemporary life, um, we're not doing that and we're remaining in this state of fight or flight for protracted periods, for days, for weeks, for months, even for years. And these protracted periods of loneliness when our bodies are in this state of high alert are very bad for our health. I mean, really bad. Loneliness is as bad for our health as um, obesity or worse even than obesity, um, as bad for our health, in fact, as smoking 15 cigarettes a day. Loneliness reduces our life expectancy, 64% um, higher chance of getting dementia, 32% higher chance of getting a heart attack, 39% um, higher chance of getting a stroke. So loneliness is in many ways the biggest public health issue we're not talking about. So let's, let's lurch back to the fact that there seems to be something about humanity that won't let that happen. Um, would you like to talk about... I mean, I, I think it's wonderful, actually, that all these old women in Japan are shoplifting to be in jail so they can be with people. It's such a practical solution. I mean, obviously, we want a better one. But um, would you like to tell say a few words about Mission Pie? Because I think that's somewhere I'd quite like to go and have a coffee soon. That's just that idea, that, just that whole kind of um, that question of, of the resilience of, the, of our need for community to DIY it, if you like. Yes. Mm. So we've probably all got that place, our, our cafe where we kind of go to, or our local bookshop where we go to, places within our community, physical spaces that nurture us and anchor us. And one of these um, 
was a cafe that I used to frequent when I went to San Francisco called Mission Pie. I mean, not only did it have great pie, um, but it was a place which really anchored the community, the kind of place where people would go and play chess games or um, there was even a kind of knitting, a regular knitting um, circle who'd meet there, the kind of place where the servers knew your name, where you knew their name, where you'd sit and chat. Um, I've got that kind of place near me. And um, sadly, in this case, in the Mission Pie case, um, because of the shift to delivery services, because of um, increased pie rents, um, Mission Pie wasn't able to keep going and they had to close shop. And that's, I don't know if it's the same in Australia, but that's a real concern right now um, in the UK for sure, that many of our restaurants, our cafes, our yoga studios, places that have anchored our bookstores, places that have anchored our communities and played such huge roles in them in recent months, who were knocked sideways during the pandemic and um, many are struggling and many may not open their doors again. And it's a reminder of how important these places are, um, how important they are to our community and how important they are to us. Um, and so I've been really consciously thinking about how can I support my local stores and cafes and bookshops in particular through this um, process and, you know, really kind of again, thinking very carefully about not trading off convenience and ordering my books, for example, online, but actually, you know, my local bookstore, we're not in the UK, we're not allowed to go to any shops at the moment. So, um, but our bookstore has kind of risen to the occasion. And if we set, if I send an email to Marek there, um, they'll, they're actually then delivering by hand in our, in our neighborhood, our books. And, you know, I'm really being conscious to try and do that but it speaks to the importance of physical spaces where we can come together. Physical spaces, of course, that the government have an important, that the government has an important role to play too. This isn't just about the market. And that's one of the things since 2008, we've seen a devastation of public spaces where people can come together, public libraries, public parks, um, elderly daycare centres, youth clubs, community centres. These are all spaces which have seen a very significant drop in funding, um, federal funding, state funding since 2008. And when I've spoken to libraries in Australia, I actually did an event with a library in Australia. Um, they tell me it was the, the same in Australia. And yet we need physical spaces to be together if we all come together. And you know, one of the things that governments you know, across the world need to do, you know, as a matter of urgency as we come out of the pandemic, is really refund these spaces, as well as us thinking about how we can support our local stores and our local community centres and events um, as well. But there is clearly a role for government to play here too. Well, again, that's um, an argument that has become so unfashionable as the pendulum of neoliberalism has swung and now here we have COVID and this sudden realisation that actually, oh, oh yes, that's why we invented government. So there's a, there's a 
part in your book where you call about where you t- calling effectively for something like a new deal again a new a new deal um, with really basic things in it like a living wage guaranteed working conditions and paid um, holidays and sick leave and when I was growing up in a child in the 1970s they were not unreasonable things to expect or and actually almost everybody I knew had them but now fewer and fewer people fewer people I know do, especially with the rise of the gig economy and the kind of smashing we've seen of the sectors through COVID that so many people I know work in. Um, Would you like to say something about government intervention and what responsible government that's cognizant, cognizant of care, compassion and community might look like as we move forward and make this a, a, a less lonely century, if you like, Narina. Yes, so much that government can do. I mean, I'll just speak to a few things. First of all, yes, um, in the United States, it was after the Great Depression, so after a you know, very, very difficult, challenging period that President Roosevelt initiated the New Deal, a programme which gave workers enhanced rights. You might have thought after the Depression they'd be reducing rights, but no, he gave them enhanced rights, ensured that there were um, labour safety standards, health standards, minimum wages. And he also introduced this amazing programme of public artworks across the country, um, paying writers um, to write things, artists to paint murals in community spaces, directors to put on plays, ways to bring society together. If there's ever a time for government to intervene in that sort of way, it's now. Again, um, but there's, there's, there's a lot that government could do um, specifically around loneliness. Of course, refund the infrastructure of community parks, libraries, etc. Another thing is really think about how they're going to help our local stores, our local cafes, our local studios. I think there should be a new tax status, a pro-community tax status, whereby businesses that are demonstrably pro-community, like Mission Pie was, you know, really bringing the community together, like local bookstores often are, would get a favourable tax status. So recognising the important role they've providing to society. We also could take what we're seeing in um, Belgium, whereby um, landlords who leave their shops empty for long periods as they're waiting to just get higher rent are disincentivized to do so because the longer they leave their shop empty, um, the higher a tax is imposed upon them, an empty stores tax. I think that's a really smart idea. Again, to do with books and libraries, Um, in um, Chicago, there's a lovely scheme that was set up with um, social, new social housing blocks that have been built with branches of Chicago Public Library on the ground floor. So new social housing built with public spaces where people can come together and also which will attract people of different demographics to the social housing blocks. So that you know, to, so that people can, in a space, reconnect. And then something we haven't, of course, touched upon yet is that, social yes. media. And yes. um, something that you know, we did, we kind of, um, you know, really something. I have a whole chapter in my book that looks at that, um, and you know, really in many ways, um, playing a huge role in why we're so lonely today, especially the young. 
here I think there is a real role for government to play in um, better regulating social media companies. I know that Australia is actually a country, you know, which is, um, you know, taking on um, social media. The rest of the world is kind of watching um, in various ways, actually. Um, you know, actually um, pioneering in, in quite in some important ways um, on this front. But social media companies are in many ways the tobacco companies of the 21st century and I believe should be regulated as such, um, especially when it comes to children um, and those under the age of consent. So um, lots and lots that government can and should do. And right now, um, given how acute loneliness levels are, you know, I think there is a real argument for ring fencing monies to address the acuteness of the loneliness crisis. And I know that in the UK, in the Netherlands and in Norway, this is already going on, um, a specific earmarking of funds for it. I'll invite some questions now so that you're not only hearing my voice. Would somebody like to come to the microphone? Thank you. Thank you, Noreena. My name is William. Um, you held your mobile phone up there, so you preempted my question a little bit. Uh, I have an iPhone in my pocket. Uh, if I chose to, I could access any number of um, uh, 100 friends, uh, albeit in inverted commas, I guess. Uh, but I can talk to my daughter in Paris every day, and I can see her the way I'm looking at you right now. I can engage in Twitter, which I don't. I could. There are all these things. So if there is an emerging crisis of loneliness, is that $500 gadget in my pocket um, a driver in the other direction? Is it... Is it uh, uh, compensating at all uh, to, to this crisis? Thank you. Great question, William. Thank you. And I began my research really very agnostic on the role that social media and our smartphones played um, in the loneliness crisis. I just didn't, I didn't know. Um, I was really asking the question that you were asking um, me just now. I was asking that myself. And as I dug into the scientific research and also as I interviewed uh, countless teenagers as part of my research, I've come out feeling strongly that net, on average, um, social media in particular, but our smartphones in general, are contributing to the loneliness crisis. Of course, during the pandemic especially, I have been very, very grateful to have my phone and be connected to my friends to my family you know who in London where we're not even allowed to meet a friend on the street at the moment you know being able to um, phone someone or FaceTime them you know is a huge relief I'm not underestimating that um, and yeah I think all of us who are grateful for technology and grateful for the fact that I'm in Adelaide right now but not in Adelaide know that um, feel that we'd rather if we had the choice be face to face um, with other people that we're aware that it's good but it's not it's not the same it's not as good um, and the trouble is that these forms of communication um, whilst really useful risk displacing in-person face-to-face communication not only risk they actually are I mean the evidence is clear they are displacing it and you'll see amongst young people before the pandemic amongst teenagers you know often they would be in a room together um but on their phones and communicating even in a room via their phones 
And one of the things I observed with my students was that um, increasing numbers as a result were finding it hard to engage in a room um, face to face. And I raised it with a colleague in the United States um, who runs one of America's most prestigious universities. And he said it had got so bad there. So many teenagers were arriving at college lacking interpersonal social skills because they were on their phones, um, that they were having to run remedial how to read a face in a room classes for their students, literally telling them if you're in a room and someone's smiling, that means that you know it's going well. And if they're frowning, it means it's going badly, which I found fascinating. And even um, moreingly, perhaps, nursery school teachers increasingly finding you know, young children, four or five-year-olds, coming to school lacking the most basic social skills because their parents are spending so much time on their phones that they're not imparting them to their children and because their children are spending so much time on their screens that they're not learning these. So, um, so that's kind of our phones playing a role. But social media um, playing, again, there are exceptions. You know, there are, you know, if you're the LGBTQ kid living in a small town in um, the middle of nowhere, um, you might well not have found your people, your community, your tribe, were it not for Facebook or Instagram or Tumblr or um, or Twitter. So, of course, there are exceptions, but on average, social media, especially when it comes for the young, playing a really um, on balance excluding and isolating role firstly because and this is true for all of us you know we scroll through our feeds and it's easy to believe that everyone is more popular than us um, that everyone has more friends um, so in relative terms it's easy to feel lonely second because these um, platforms are actually for many people very toxic and hateful 65% of UK students have experienced cyberbullying firsthand one in three um, UK women aged between 18 and 24 have been experienced abuse on Facebook. So, so quite vicious um, platforms which make people inevitably feel more um, isolated, but also um, spaces where young people, especially if they are excluded from their um, social, um, from their peers, online activities, feeds, events, WhatsApp groups, etc. You know, it can feel incredibly excluded. Of course, kids always were in danger of feeling excluded in the past, but what's different is that their exclusion now is broadcast to all their peers 24-7, and also that the adults in their life are often not aware it's going on. So, you know, you might not know if you have a child or a grandchild um, who's being excluded because you're not seeing that they're not being invited to do something. The teacher isn't seeing that they're not being invited to sit with others because so much of their social life is, has migrated to their phones. So just a few of the um, reasons why, on balance, um, these devices are um, Create, contributing really quite strikingly to today's loneliness crisis, um, keeping us perma-connected yet perma-distracted from each other, together yet alone. Another question, thank you. <clears throat> thank you. Thank you very much for your very interesting talk.
Um, I had a question that's kind of related to this whole phone thing, but just to juxtaposition to something you described, uh, which is a very low-tech situation, the dancing, the daytime discos. I've been living in China until recently, and I've always been amazed at the people who gather on street corners to dance in the middle of winter and the middle of summer. It's just an amazing idea. This is such a, a low-tech way to connect with people, but obviously it's very enduring. It's become part of the community. I wonder how easy it is to um, get these sort of things going in our more high-tech society. And also now we've become so um, fascinated by our phones and isolated by our phones. How do you bridge that gap to go to um, really more grassroots connections? So I think it's partly a mindset shift that's needed where we, you know, where we recognize that sometimes there are trade-offs to be made between convenience and community, um, between the kind of ease of, you know, doing our yoga class on our phones now or actually going and bothering to be amongst other people. So partly it's a mindset shift. I think the market, though, is going to step in, and I do expect to see a rise of what I call the loneliness economy, especially post um, when we start feeling um, safer around each other physically, um, because speaking to that really fundamental human need to be together. So I expect the market to step in and to see more of these group gatherings. I think, you know, in the same way that after we fasted for a period, we become more hungry, typically. After this period of social recession, um, we are actually going to crave these physical in-person interactions more. So that, so that gives me hope. And I guess, you know, we have to show up at these events too if we want them to thrive and exist. So, you know, if there is a local discotheque starting local daytime dances, you, know, you should go there. And, and if there isn't, you know, maybe suggest it to them yourself and initiate it. So it's partly about us taking responsibility for co-creating a world in which we come together again and in which we are able to re reconnect and making that part of our own agendas. Thank you. One very short question and answer. Thank, Thank you. you. Um, I just wanted to know, uh, with regard to the economic policies of the 1980s, the me era, the development of technology, uh, all of this has led, of course, to this insulation and somewhat conservatism in some ways, um, and how the reorganization of the social society uh, can be made uh, through the institutional systems. You know, we don't want to burden the education system, but how much more can we actually do to really reverse these trends that have happened? So what my final chapter um, of the book kind of looks, I think, addresses this question at kind of depth. And, um, you know, just, I think this is about governments doing uh, essentially two things. One, um, recognizing the um, kind of legitimate pain and um, 
that that many people are in um, in term in economic terms, especially now, especially post the pandemic, and really meaningfully addressing that, um, and also ensuring that there are that there are, that there is work for people post the pandemic. We know that there is you know, loneliness can affect everyone regardless of income for sure, but we know that if you're on a lower income or if you're unemployed, you're more likely to be lonely. And government, I think, has a real role to play, not only in providing money to people, but also in providing work. And of course, that was something else that President Roosevelt did in the New Deal, had a big public works um, program and created jobs. And I think that would be necessary. But there are also initiatives governments can do about bringing people together. One thing that President Macron in France is initiating is piloting is a civic service scheme um, for young people, for teenagers, where young people come together, um, live together for a couple of months, are mandatory from all different socioeconomic groups, from all different backgrounds, and do voluntary um, and civic type work together. And I think there are roles for governments to play in helping communities bridge, helping bridge communities, bring different groups of people together rich, poor, young, old, um, different um, ethnicities. There is a role for government to play here too, um, as well as, of course, initiatives that we can be part of along these lines within our own communities. Thank you so much for writing this book. It's a, it's a, an agora of its own, really. It's, we, it's really hard to talk about ideas if people don't continue to reframe and use elegant and compelling languages and stories to generate dialogue. And so I really want to thank you, Narina, for persisting with the technology. I hope one day to meet you to be able to make real eye contact. I'm not, I, I don't know whether to look at the camera or whatever. So I've just been looking at people's faces mainly and um, everyone's been fully present with you today. So thank you so much. I'd like to ask you And... Um, Thank you all. It's been it's been such a pleasure to do this. Um, it's morning my time now, so um, I'm starting my day with a spring in my step. And um, how brilliant to be! Um, and this is thank you, technology. How brilliant to have been together with all of you. I really appreciated it. Well, Narina, I'll um, give you an extra spring because this concludes the festival and I really particularly want to thank... This festival wouldn't work faintly without the wonderful volunteers who've been... Um, it's as though they've read your book, yeah? So they've made this a mix of... Um, a mix of Glastonbury and what a university really should be and what our public space, our degraded public spaces should be. So I really want to um, thank them. I'll, I'll, I don't know the names of the tech people who've done an amazing job, but Nigel and Mark, thank you, and all of you. Um, so... So everyone's practicing what what you've what you've prescribed in the book, and enjoy winter, <laughs> the end of winter, spring. You're in spring, and um, and everyone, please do buy the book, and imagine a virtual signing by Narina. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Thank you.